This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. In my search for budget boats, I've met some unique and eclectic characters. There was the guy with the transom made from Bondo, and who could forget the fellow with the homemade composite wood aluminum boat? A quick test row revealed the flaws in his craftsmanship and design. The floor leaked like a sieve. Last summer, low water flows sent me on an emergency search for a raft and trailer. Not an easy item to locate these days, but I was referred to one Nick Halley who solved my dilemma. Turns out he works for Trout Unlimited and agreed to join us today. So without further ado, Nick Halley, welcome to the program. Hey, Justin, thanks for having me. Yeah, buddy, thanks for having you. And uh, I apologize for the disappointment, um, but you drew the short end of the stick and you get to talk to me today. Well, they can't, they can't all be first round picks. That's right. I've never been a first round pick, man. Always, <laughs> always the last one on the bench. Um, well, right on, man. Uh, you know, we start things off here with a yarn. So you got a fishing story for us or an adventure? 
Well, I, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't have anything that's going to uh, hold a candle to Jay Dixon's story of getting chased around by a llama in a lightning storm, but um, <laughs> I guess it'd be appropriate. You know, I, I don't come from a, a fishing family, but I come from a uh, family of poor decision makers, um, which <laughs> has led us to some, some pretty good stories. And uh, um, I, I definitely kind of fell in love with rivers before I fell in love with, uh, with fishing and fly fishing. Um, and, uh, so I would spend all my summers up in, um, in Maine in Northwestern Maine up in the mountains. And, uh, well, over the years, we unfortunately got to have some familiarity with the local ranger for just, um, frankly, I mean, you know, not on him, on us for just doing stupid stuff all the time, um, and getting in trouble and needing a little help. Um, so most recently, um, this was, I was probably, oh, geez, I must've been in seventh or eighth grade. Um, there's a piece of water, the, the dead river in Maine is a, uh, it's a whitewater destination. They do whitewater releases below Flagstaff Lake, but above the lake, there are two branches and the South branch of the dead river is, um, usually only runnable at high water just cause it's so, uh, it's a, for Maine, it's a pretty high gradient stream. There's a lot of rocks. And um, we were heading up one summer, my family and I, um, and apparently it had been raining up there for about a week. Uh, and so my dad was very, very keen on going and doing the South Branch, which he had done a few times at, at high water. Um, he said, you know, kind of, you need, you need three or four days of good, good rain, not, not, not stupid rain, good rain. <laughs> well, we'd had a week um, and, some of our family friends up there, um, we would do a lot of stuff with, um, joined us and, uh, the kind of the patriarch and the guy who ended up being, um, I suppose my surrogate grandfather of sorts, uh, after my grandfather passed was a man named, named Julian Stein. Um, and Julian was about at the time, I think Julian was 89, um, and the guy had never met a bad decision he didn't like. So we, we show up to the, uh, to the put-in on this logging road, and the river is pretty much over the logging road bridge. Now, we are about to go down this, this river in not whitewater boats. <laughs> we had a couple of canoes, a couple of, you know, sit-on-top kayaks and, you know, lake kayaks. And Julian and his granddaughter were in what I can only describe as a, uh, like a old town canoe with a transom. Um, not exactly a, you know, whitewater worthy craft. So we go down the river and uh, it's, you know, it's moving real good. And eventually we get to the first drop, which is called Dead Reckoning. Um, and uh, I don't even recognize it. You know, it does not look like anything I had ever been down before. And uh, needless to say, every single boat in that river dumps. Um, I got pinned under a rock and had to had to get out of my kayak and got myself to the shore just in time to, to scoop up uh, the octogenarian Mr. Stein as he is going down the river. <laughs> um, so now we are on, our parties are on two different sides of this river, which is so loud we cannot, you know, we can't shout at each other over it. And Julian says, I think I have, you know, <laughs> banged up my leg. I'm 89 years old, if you hadn't noticed. I got to get out of here, man. And I'm like, no, dude, let's let's stay by the river and, you know, we'll sort this out. And he's like, well, you can stay, but I'm walking to the road. 
so I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna leave the guy, but um, so we start walking in the vague direction of the highway, which we know is somewhere out there. Um, now this is uh, late July in Maine, and we are walking through one of these you know impenetrable main swamps with uh you know little conifers about the size of a uh about the size of a you know hockey stick that are about you know four inches apart from each other and the flies and the mosquitoes are so bad by the end of the by <laughs> in a few hours my left eye swole shut um and julian is going along he's he's clutched to this uh this this paddle that he, uh, his, his, his canoe paddle that he's had for like 60 years and refuses to, to let go of it. Um, and we, what we thought, you know, might be about a two mile walk. Well, we were walking for about eight hours. Um, well, I shouldn't say walking. We were, you know, bushwhacking at this point. Julian is mostly, he looks kind of like a, uh, kind of like a blueberry you know the guy is just completely black and blue i find so i eventually found some some tree that was a little taller than the rest of them scramble up it and find uh um mount bigelow which i knew was kind of roughly in the direction that we needed to be going so i kind of you know (laughs) put us in that direction and uh so about eight to ten hours after we left the bank of the river we pop out on the highway where there are, where it seems like every cop car and park ranger in, in northern Maine was looking for us, and they eventually, uh, you know, at this point, I'm picking up his legs to, to move him. Um, <laughs> we get up to the highway, and the guy collapses from dehydration. Jeez. He's probably had a heart attack. He gets in the he gets in the ambulance and he heads right to the hospital. I get in the car with my dad, who you know he somehow had you know salvaged one of the boats downstream and take took like you know, eight people in that canoe through the rest of the river. Um, and uh, we're sitting there in the car and Ranger Reggie, uh, Reggie Hammond <laughs> pulls up and he says, I want to have a word with you. And he gets my gets my dad out and just, just hucks his clipboard at him. And uh, <laughs> just basically, just start screaming. I'm like, what are you thinking, dude? And who, and who the hell is this Julian guy? He's done. No more Julian. Um, <laughs> at this point, I can't Reggie see. Reggie lost it. I, oh, Reggie, oh, he had every cost. This is like the third time he'd rescued my dad and Julian doing some <laughs> stupid crap up there. Um, you know, <laughs> he's totally in the right and we were totally in the wrong, but you know, at this point, my hand—I couldn't fake—I couldn't make a fist. You know, my hands are all swollen up, and you know, we went and did it three more times that summer. That's how much fun we had. <laughs> Ranger Re- Ranger Reggie blew his top. Yeah, yeah. I apologize. That's you know, I, there's no llama chase in that story, but uh, oh, you know, man. it's certainly one of the more memorable times I had on the river. I had my, you know. $50 Eagle Claw outfit in the in the kayak because I was like, oh, maybe I'll fish a little bit. Uh, well, yeah, that thing uh, that thing was gone uh, along with a couple of the canoes, but <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a memorable one for sure. And uh, and that was that was in a rapid called Dead Reckoning on the Dead River. Dead Reckoning, yeah, on the south branch of the Dead. Wow. Yeah, that uh, that that reminds me, it, it sounds like we had similar upbringings. Um, 
And uh, one of our river misadventures, we used to go down and float the wild and scenic section of the Rogue whenever we could pull a permit, you know. And uh, I don't How old were you during that story? Oh, I must, uh, eighth grade, seventh grade. I was, you know. Uh, yeah. Not an adult. <laughs> yeah. 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 Too young to know better. Um, and I was probably about the same age as you were. And um, we were in whitewater Tahiti, what we call Tahiti's, you know, those little inflatable kayaks. And so we had the big raft, obviously, with all the gear and everything on it that my dad was running. And um, the kids would take turns in Tahiti's. And my sister and I were going down what's called Grave Creek Falls on the wild and scenic section of the Rogue, you know, another aptly named rapid like Dead Reckoning. Yeah. And, uh, and we flipped and I remember just being, you know, like in a washing machine, right? I'm just getting somersaulted underneath, underneath the, the water and, uh, I am scrambling around trying to grab onto something and I I latch onto something and it turns out it's my sister's life vest and she is pinned around a rock and we both popped free and managed to survive the event. So that was an extremely close call. And then my mother on the same trip went for a prolonged swim in um, what's called the picket fence, which is um, a really dangerous section of whitewater uh, on that river as well. But, you know, my dad would dive into those things without a, a lot of research and, uh, and you know, just just more hubris than anything. It'll all work out. And yeah, it did. Yeah, my, <laughs> my dad's risk management policy, I, I, I would summarize as, eh. Should be fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. man. Well, it's made uh, it's made me a much more careful boater. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Surviving yeah, my childhood. So, yeah, I would say I probably uh, I probably err a little bit more on the side of caution than uh, than we did up up in my youth in Maine. Um, we had another <laughs> another kind of um, I wouldn't say ill fated adventure, but we. Um, you know, I hope the, the statute of limitations on this is uh, is pretty much gone. But uh, we may or may not have trespassed onto a United States naval base to try to find some waterfall up in Maine, <laughs> which we never found. Um, and uh, I, have a, <laughs> I have a great picture of my dad and, and Julian standing next to the sign that says, you know, United property of United States Navy. Like, do not like do not continue down this road. It didn't say like trespassers will be shot on site or anything really exciting like that, but they're just both like standing there, just big smiles, two thumbs up, just really <laughs> what we're doing. Oh yeah, nice. <laughs> that nice. may not have happened. You know? Right, right, yeah, yeah. It's it's you know it's, yeah. it's hard to recall all the details and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. my attorney here. Yeah, foggy. Yeah, right. Um, well, cool. Well, you are the you're the. Let me get your title right. You're the outreach coordinator for TU National. Is that correct? So, so I am our national volunteer operations coordinator. Um, Mister Mister Pfeiffer is uh, the outreach coordinator for Montana TU. It might be. Uh, mixing up the titles but i so i i do uh 
a lot of work with our grassroots programs, um, kind of steering them on policy and process and, you know, making sure that, um, you know, Trout Unlimited has 420 something volunteer led local chapters that, um, to use the party line, you know, bring to use conservation mission to life in their own communities. And, you know, there's a lot of really kind of high level work that we do at the staff level, but there's many, you know, local, local resources and waterways that, that don't, that simply just don't have the, uh, have the uh, cachet or salience to get, you know, that kind of federal money or, um, you know, attention. So our grassroots chapters do a lot of incredible work and um, at the local level to make sure that these, you know, bodies of water that, well, they might not be important from a, you know, landscape level uh, focus on conservation. They're really important to the people in those communities. Um, they focus a lot on youth education and um, kind of uh, making sure that there's a voice for trout, salmon, and clean water, uh, clean, cold water and healthy habitat in their own communities. So I, I work with our chapters and try to make sure that they can um, operate to the best of their abilities as kind of independent uh conservation organizations very cool and uh how long have you been in that role nick Ooh, um i think at this point it's uh it's probably five years um okay five years i've been uh doing that job for tu um i uh might be cutting you off here but i uh i spent in college i spent my um I spent my summers working out in Wyoming, um, doing kind of outdoor education for a company called T-Town Science Schools, um, which, you know, we kind of, the program we called Diet Knowles or Knowles Light, you know, we take take kids into the backcountry and, uh, you know, basically just try to teach them how to not die immediately right. um, and talk about, you know, greater Yellowstone ecosystem, uh, ecology and stuff like that. Um, and uh, after college, I... I graduated and I took off my graduation gown and I got right in my truck and um, headed to, to Craig, Montana to go work in a fly shop to, um, you know, start my career as, as a fly fishing guide. Um, well, it wasn't too long before um, I kind of figured that I didn't really want to be a full-time guide. And I um, was trying to kind of find my, my next step. My, um, <laughs> my education background is in, uh, nuclear weapons policy and strategy. So uh, I don't really have a clear, uh, didn't really have a clear line to, uh, to conservation, but um, I, <laughs> you know, I did what I could and I, I found a job with Trout Unlimited in Washington, DC uh, on the internet, basically in the, uh, in the mail room. Um, wow. And uh, I took that job, you know, mailing people calendars and stickers and, just thought, you know, maybe I could get my foot in the door and wait for wait for something better to, to open up. And luckily, I was able to do that and uh, had got the job of a volunteer ops coordinator. And uh, then a couple years went by in D.C. and I called my boss one day and I said, I don't work for this company because I love concrete. So I'm going to move back to Montana. Um whether or not I'm employed with you guys is that balls in your court. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, I guess uh, I guess I had done enough to 
<laughs> to convince them that they wanted to keep me around. So uh, I moved out here to Missoula just a few years ago, and uh, you know this is this is home now. Wow, right on, man. Um, so you did your your studies in, um, in what was it again? Nuclear what? Uh, you know, that's a, it's a, you know, my degree is in international relations and history, but, um, my, my thesis, the college I went to the college of Western Ohio, we have a, um, really, uh, involved undergraduate thesis program. Um, and I wrote my thesis. It was, I wrote it for two years. Uh, I think it ended up being about 180 pages, um, on the invalidation of brinksmanship as an instrument of foreign policy, uh, during the cold war. Ooh. Ooh, okay. Yeah, well, it, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to dive into that sometime if you got a copy laying around. Um, it sounds like <laughs> your uh, your background uh, should open some doors for you, though. You know, should you stumble onto some naval base or something? Uh, I think they would probably. I think they'd probably be pretty upset, regardless of my. <laughs> hey guys, uh, I know I know I'm not supposed to be here, but uh, you know, if you read my thesis, it's very. Could you take a minute to read this? Just yeah. tell me what you Could think. You take, like, I came here for eighty pages. I came yeah. here for just some expert opinions. Well, cool, man. <laughs> that's a that's a, a interesting background, and good on you for scoring what uh, most of us you know, referred to as a dream job. And I understand that that has uh, a lot of uh, implications with it and all jobs have um, their ups and downs, but uh, working for TU National in Montana is a, a gig that a lot of my friends have aspired to and not been able to, to lock down, um, myself included. So good on you. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I have... <sighs> I have a lot of friends that work jobs that they like. I don't have many friends that actually I shouldn't say that at this point. Um, but I, I, I know that not everybody gets to work in a job or for an organization that um, in their heart of hearts, they, they, you know, deeply believe in and deeply connect with the mission. So I, I'm, I'm very privileged to go to work every day and know that, the work that I'm doing is in the interest of protecting and, um, you know, conserving a resource that is just really hard. It's really hard to uh, put into words how much, you know, wild rivers and, and fish mean to me. So it, it's definitely not something I take for granted and uh, I feel lucky every day. Well, awesome, man. That's uh, yeah. If you can hang your hat on that, you're doing all right. You know, as an angler, as a, obviously your job, is um, somewhat centered around cold water fisheries and habitats. Um, but as an angler, I know you like to kind of fish for everything, including, you know, bass and, and pike and, uh, and those, uh, those types of species that are, you know, somewhat maligned in places here uh, in Western Montana. And I'm curious as to the, the court of public opinion on, you know, pike in trout rivers. Um, the, the pike have been in these rivers longer than I've been here. And to me, they seem to rather coexist. Um, what are your thoughts on the competition between, you know, pike and, and trout? And, you know, keeping in mind that pike don't really compete with, say, west slopes and bull trout much because they're in different habitats. And, 
you know, what we're talking about here is like introduced brown and rainbow trout versus introduced pike. <laughs> it, and, and that's the nuts and bolts of it. And I, I, I feel like they have come to rather coexist. But what are your thoughts? Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So, and I'll say this as, you know, as me, not as I don't want to, you know, speak for the company as we've, as we've established, I don't have a uh, fisheries biology background. Um, but um, the first thing that um, I, I want to say is, and you'll hear some people say, well, pike are native to Montana. And that is true to a very, with a very large asterisk. Um, the only place in Montana that pike are native is um, up in Glacier. Um, we call it the, the crown of the continent because there is um, around Glacier National Park, there are three major watersheds. Um, there is the West Slope, which goes to the Pacific Ocean. Um, the East Slope goes to the Missouri um, or, you know, the yeah. Missouri, then Mississippi drainage heads to the Gulf. And then there's a very tiny corner um, on the northeastern side of the park that uh, goes to the Hudson Bay drainage, um, and I believe it's, I believe it's the Saskatchewan River, um, and that is the only little sliver of Montana that pike are actually native to. So if anyone tells you that they are native um, when they're talking about you know the Bitterroot, Clark Fork, Flathead. That's not. That's just not true. Right. Um, and you know they have been here a while. They were illegally introduced. Um, I believe they were introduced in the you know Salmon Sealy area, uh, and they were also introduced in a lake near Lolo, I believe. Um, this is many years ago, but you know now they are all over the place in those lakes in the Clearwater. They are all over the Clark Fork. They are all over the Bitterroot. Um, and one of the, uh, you know, and we don't know a whole lot about um, their interactions with trout. Here's what we do know. We do know that um, our rivers right now are, for trout populations, they're well below carrying capacity, which, stay, you know, in, in other words, their the habitat could support more fish than there are um pike numbers are pretty significant especially in you know places like the lower bitterroot and clark fork um and right now i know fwp is tagging pike to try to find you know try to research a little bit more about you know their movements and their habits um so if you do catch a pike um, that has a pit tag in it, please report it to FWP. Um, they're looking for those. But, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that you say, you know, they don't, you know, occupy the same niche. Um, and to some extent, they they don't. You know, we find them in the sloughs and backwaters. Um, we don't find them typically in the oxygenated water that trout really like. But, you know, there are... There are studies that have shown that the, these fish do predate on 
uh, on trout a good bit. And one of the, uh, when they were doing research on Milltown Dam back before they removed it, um, one of the reasons that they wanted to remove that dam is because it actually became a, a pike factory. Um, right. And there was a, a researcher named uh, David Schmetterling, I think, and he did a study where he found more juvenile bull trout in the stomachs of pike around Milltown Dam than there were in that reach of river uh you know alive <laughs> right so so there there is some predation for sure um but you know in places like the bitterroot um it's certainly um maybe less of an overlap in terms of the habitat they occupy than in the um you know sealy lake swan uh in that neck of the woods but you know we're trying to trying to figure out just how much you know they predate on those fish um and it's 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 unclear at this time you know how how much they are impacting our trout habitats but you know in a changing climate and a perpetual drought that doesn't seem to be ending um and particularly in the clark fork where there's also a uh you know the mining legacy um you know talking to some of my colleagues a lot of them feel that, you know, the pike issue is kind of low on the totem pole in terms of, uh, you know, the threats facing our, our trout populations. But um, the, you know, they are, they are a sport fish, but, um, you know, people generally don't come to, uh, people generally don't come to Montana to fish for pike. They come to fish for trout. So it's yeah. definitely a, you know, an objective to kind of prioritize, even though they are, you know, as non-native as the pike are, to prioritize the trout fishery over um, a pike fishery. But, you know, as as opinions and climate changes, you know, that could change too. I mean, I certainly love catching them and uh, they, uh, you know, they're here to stay. They're not going anywhere. Um, you know, we are well past that point um, in terms of, uh, the population and conservation objectives, you know, they're, they're, they're here to stay. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was speaking specifically to competition between pike and, you know, the native species, West slopes and bull trout. Um, obviously there's going to be interspecies predation at a, you know, what I would think would be a pretty high level um, where browns and rainbows, browns particularly, you know, share that same habitat. And obviously you see west slopes in, in the same stretches where you see pikes, especially on the Bitterroot. And um, um, so, but, you know, I guess my, my and it's interesting, I, I like what you said there and how you explained um, the, uh, the small area that, they believe has native pike and you know maybe that's a fact i don't i don't know the regulations kind of keep it somewhat vague uh in their description of that it says that uh pike may be native to that saskatchewan river watershed um, well yeah they're definitely they're definitely native to the water the watershed whether or not they gotcha. actually lived in that because that's the very top of that watershed. Whether or not they lived up there is, you know, very questionable. It's certainly not, you know, a big, slow river up there. But it, they are native to that drainage. So in theory, they could have swum up there. Um, gotcha. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that clarifies it. Um, 
Yeah. So, you know, are, are the pike really in direct competition with, with like the Browns and the rainbows that are introduced? Um, or is it, has it, have they been together long enough that there's somewhat of a symbiotic relationship now? Like the, the big, the big Browns are eating the baby pike. Um, for certain, you know, that must be the case. Maybe they go into those sloughs when you see them digging through that, that, um, that seagrass in there. Um, maybe they're eating pike eggs, you know, uh, who knows? It's an interesting as, you know, from an angling perspective and what I've seen here in the time that I've lived here. Um, I just haven't seen like a decline in, in the the regions the the sections of fisheries where the two species overlap like there's still plenty of big trout and there's plenty of big pike and you know but to your point maybe there'd be more big trout if there were fewer pike due to what what you said about the carrying capacity well yeah and it's definitely a you know an issue of you know biomass um you know every every watershed every reach has a carrying capacity for you know a, a good way to think of it is you know pounds of fish right um not necessarily numbers of fish because a you know a 24 inch brown trout needs quite a bit more food than a fry does um and it's different food um what we do know is that the places that the pike like to hang out are also the places that juvenile trout typically take refuge. Um, and we know that pike, you know, will eat any, darn near anything that swims. Um, but we, we don't know to what extent. Um, and, you know, they, they do, pike do, all, you know, they're a voracious predator. They're a higher trophic level um, than trout. Uh but we don't, you know, there's just so much that we don't know about them. And that's why this research is so important to find out just kind of how much they they overlap and interact and how that uh, pike population is affecting trout. Um, and I can't tell you anything about research. I can only tell you colloquial observations in this regard. But I have seen on the Bitterroot, um, you know, you'll be going into a tailout and you'll see a big pike and you will see kind of you know, in its, uh, you know, if it was a truck, it'd be right in its blind spot, you know, behind and to the side, you'll see in a big brown. And yeah. it's part of me that wonders how much are they kind of, uh, you know, Working at a certain together. Point, yeah, at a certain point, you know, brown yeah. trout in particular become almost entirely piscivorous, um, or at the very least, you know, uh, you know, like, just like DiCaprio doesn't get up for a lifetime uh, made for TV movie. Um, you know, they, they don't really make <laughs> much, a to my wife chagrin. much to my wife. Yeah. Chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's only, he's only getting out of bed for the, for the Scorsese and the, um, yeah, the right. Tarantino flicks, you know, yeah. they're not really interested in small, small quarry. So I, you know, just like pike are. Um, and so I wonder to what extent just seeing that behavior, and I've seen it a few times, if they are actually kind of, uh, you know, uh, using one another a little bit to, uh, to, to hunt. Um, and I don't know. Um, but it is an interesting thing that I've seen. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, this there this is largely conjecture and colloquial observations, but um, the research is really important to you know kind of 
understand um, how those species interact. And it's also a, you know, it's a very, um, I, I'm a true optimist as, you know, working in conservation, I think it's, you know, completely immaterial. I think you have to be optimistic and believe that, you know, humans are incredibly smart species. And, you know, if we've managed over the years to mess things up so bad, there's, there's a chance that we can uh, correct things. But, you know, as our climate continues to warm, um, you know, we might be fishing for, for cool water species a lot more than we're fishing for, for cold water species. And um, frankly, as an angler, um, I love being able to go out in the, uh, in the dog days of summer and, and target pike uh, because they're, they're super, super fun fish to catch. And uh, you know, on a, uh, I'm sure you've done this, but on, you know, a, a really hot day in the middle of summer on the Bitterroot, you fish for trout in the morning and pike in the afternoon. And uh, um, you know, as things continue to change, you know, that it might be that you know we start fishing for those fish a little bit more but um there's just so much that we don't know and uh you know it'll be really interesting to see what the research says but like i said you know with the pike numbers increasing and the trout numbers kind of on the decline um it definitely is not you know <laughs> the presence of pike is not augmenting the trout population that's right uh, that's something we can say with a little bit of confidence right right um yeah that's uh that's interesting what you said about uh the the pike and the big brown together and the tail outs is i i've seen that too and and wondered the same exact thing like all right you kill it i'll clean it up <laughs> or, or you know yeah. but maybe big predators just are hanging out in the same spot because they they uh you know they they don't that that's the place to be at at that time is the tail out where they don't have to fight the current and they can uh pick off a fish that happens to to amble out of the you know the bucket or whatever but um yeah interesting observation for sure um, and then, you know, like up in the Clearwater chain, which you mentioned, you know, the old timers certainly will lament the pike. Some of them, um, John McLean comes to mind and he talks of the incredible West Slope fishing that used to be up in, in Sealy Lake. And, um, I mean, I haven't, I don't fish for him much up there, but I haven't caught a West Slope up there, uh, maybe ever that I can recall, um, there's certainly big browns and, and bull trout and a bunch of uh, big species, you know, big predators sharing that habitat now. But um, um, yeah, there's there, I definitely understand how somebody that grew up up in an area that was amazing trout fishing could uh, blame the pike for for the decline that we've seen in, in the last couple of decades. Yeah, and you know, Schmetterling's research definitely shows that you know they 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 do predate on on trout, um, and you know that's not a that's not a mystery. Um, but you know, we're in a we're in a time we're in um, the uh, the Anthropocene where you know uh, human impacts are changing everything in the natural world, um, unfortunately. And there's a um, <laughs> there's a sticker behind the bar in uh, in the kettle house 
tap room that says the golden age of Missoula was always before you got here. (laughs) 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 But, uh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to think anything other than, you know, the good old days for some people are right now. Um, but definitely things are changing. And, um, you know, we talk about it with the, um, with the issue of hybridization of rainbows and cutthroat, and, you know, the cutbow trout. And while we do kind of lament the, uh, the loss of those pure genetics, you know, that might be what ultimately saves, um, our trout fishery. And that's, uh, you know, the natural selection for a fish that's a little bit more thermally tolerant. And, um, that's just another reason why, you know, in Montana, we haven't stocked our rivers for since, you know, the seventies because of Dick Vincent's incredible groundbreaking research. If we focus on habitat and wild trout, we're, and keep it wild, you know, the, you know, natural selection will run its course. Um, and, uh, the most fit organisms are going to survive. So in, you know, in that way, you know, it's, it's really important that we, you know, continue to protect our wild, wild trout and, you know, wild fish heritage here, because it's a model that works. um, And the science is overwhelmingly clear on it. Now, that is something the, the the pike wrinkle is definitely not something that was you know included in Vincent's study for sure. But um, you know we're in a we're in a changing climate and a changing world, and uh, you know the fish that are well equipped to survive are going to. So um, you know the may the best fish win, but we're going to try to do everything we can in our power from a conservation standpoint to see that, you know, the native fish uh, are, you know, they're still here for, for generations to come. And certainly, you know, in lieu of true natives, um, wild trout, because, you know, this is, this is Montana. This is where people come to, to fish for trout and they're, uh, they're spectacular fish. <laughs> I like trout a whole lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wild wild trout fishing around here is pretty incredible for sure, man. There's not too much. And not to mention it really important to our economy. Yeah, um, for sure. you know, if if Definitely. this was not a wild trout destination, you know, there'd be a lot of a lot of folks like uh you know, like yourself and myself that probably, you know, maybe not out of a job, but certainly wouldn't be able to to do what we do. Um as often or as uh or as lucratively that's probably not a word but well fair enough fair enough <laughs> yeah we wouldn't be having a podcast right now probably uh <laughs> without uh without without this this community and um it's because uh, it really is partly centered around wild trout fishing here it's one of the best places to do it and has more variety than any region i've seen in in the lower 48 agreed i you know in terms in terms of you know diversity of fishery i really you know i i find it really hard to argue that there's a state in this country that has more diverse uh and um high quality fishing opportunities than than the state of michigan um i think the (laughs) the great lakes ecosystem is we talk about diversity of fisheries. I don't think anything can hold a candle to that. But in the Mountain West, for 
you know, truly wild fish with a bunch of native fish. Yes, absolutely. I don't think that um, there's anything like the West side of Montana. All right. Everybody got the message. Go to Michigan. Michigan's <laughs> the spot. <laughs> well, right on, Nick. Um, what is the timetable on this study that you reference um, that FWP is conducting? Do you know? I do not. Um, I know that they've started it, um, I believe, in this last uh, last calendar year, um, started tagging pike. Um I don't know how long they are doing that study for it. Like, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm our national vol ops coordinator. My, my work here in Montana is actually fairly, um, fairly insignificant because we have such uh, an incredible state council with staff um, like, you know, Dr. Brooks and Bill Pfeiffer and the Kelly Willett and all those folks that, that work here locally. Um, so my, my national, exactly. Yeah. Hackathorn, Hackathorn uh, uh, Rob, 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 Rob Roberts. Yeah. Paul Parson. I mean, there's a, there's a, Scanlon, there's a ton of incredible staffers that do work locally here. Um, and, uh, I, um, frankly, I, you know, with 420, uh, organizations across the country, I'm maybe not as, focused on Montana as I would like to be. Um, but the FWP study um, just started, you know, very recently. I don't know what the timetable is, but certainly um, I don't believe it's going to be short. Um, we're going to need to know not only how these fish behave and move, uh, you know, in the summer, but we also want to know where they're going in the winter. Um, be partially because um, we do know that bull trout are extremely migratory and um, bull trout are, for those who don't know, they are a federally listed species protected by the Endangered Species Act. Um, they are, they're not very hardy um, and they're very, very particular about their habitat and um, they need really cold, clean water. They need really complex habitat. They need really large uh, watersheds that are connected to complete their life cycle. And we do know that, you know, those fish that maybe up in the North Fork of the Blackfoot um, or up in the Clearwater, um, they, a lot of them come all the way down to the lower Bitterroot to, to spend their winters. Um, and while there might not be a whole lot of pike up in the, uh, in the North Fork of the Blackfoot, there certainly are a ton um, in the in the Lower Bitterroot and Clark Fork. So there's definitely an overlap um, in those winter months that they spend down there. So um, we're going to need to know a lot about their movements, uh, not just in the you know the high season, if you will, of fishing, but um, year round. So I imagine that study will be going on for for some time. But I. I um, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the uh, what the schedule is on that. Interesting. Well, now you've, you've given me the, the notion that I need to go try to hunt down a tagged pike. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'm certainly looking for one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, Nick. Well, what's the best way for folks to reach you um, and, um, you know, learn more about your work and TU in general? Well, um, if you are, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can, uh, shoot me an email. Um, 
My email address is pretty easy. It's nick.halley. Um, that's H-A-L-L-E, like Halle Berry. Nick.halley. Yes, yes. Nick. a lot like Halle Berry. Exactly. Just like Halle Berry. <laughs> um, nick.halley at tu.org. Um, and feel free to drop me drop me a line. And um, if you're interested in you know getting involved with your local chapter, learning more about TU, um, if it's a question I can answer, I'll do it. If it's a question I can't answer, I probably know who can. Um, and I'm more than happy to connect anybody um, with uh, with somebody to, um, you know, right on. answer any uh, concerns or questions you have. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spend, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.